0: my name is becca the old testament reading is found in genesis 3 6 through 10 when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desired desirable for gaining wisdom she took some and ate it she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized that they were naked so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves Hi, my name is Caitlin. The New Testament reading is found in 1 John four thirteen through 18 By this we know that we abide in him, and he in us, because he has given us of his spirit. We have seen and testified that the Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him, and he in God. We have come to know and have believed the love which God has for us. God is love. And the one who abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this, love is perfected with us, so that we have confidence in the day of judgment. Because as he is, so also are we in the world. There is no fear in love, but for perfect love casts out fear. Because fear has to do with punishment, and the one who fears is not perfected in love. The word of the Lord. Hi, my name is Chelsea. Please stand for the gospel reading found in John 14, 6-9. Jesus answered, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you have really known me, you will also know the Father. From now on, you know him and have seen him. Philip said, Lord, show us the Father. That will be enough for us. Jesus replied, Don't you know me, Philip, even after I have been with you all this time? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, Show us the Father? The Gospel of the Lord. Amen. You may be seated. Good morning. Rule number one about public speaking, preaching, anything, teaching, is always travel with an entourage. So the first two rows are friends of ours, friends that I got to do life with (laughs) from our previous season of doing ministry with RMR Backcountry. Hey, like Evan said, my name is Joey Jimenez, and I'm one of the associate pastors here, still getting used to saying that. One of the associate pastors here at New Life downtown. And Glenn's traveling this weekend, obviously with a big and important cause. It's on all of our hearts. And so the privilege is mine to get to open the scriptures to us this morning. And I could not be more excited about what I feel like the Lord has for us this morning through his word. My own time the past few weeks has just been sweet, getting to sit and listen and to sift through this with the Lord. And for me personally, it has been a breath of fresh air. And my hope and my prayer this morning is that it is unto you in the same way that it has been to me. We are going to pick up right where we left off last week, and we are in the second half of First John chapter 4. Glenn led us in through the first half, talking about the reality that God is love, and that while nobody has seen God, verse 12, that when we abide in and when we participate in God's love outwardly, when we love one another, which was the title of Glenn's sermon last week, when we love one another, that God's love is made visible, and so this morning we're going to pick up right at the second half of that. But before we get started, before we dive in, I want to tell a quick story. Um, so I grew up one of the. I grew up in San Antonio, Texas, and I, I did not actually begin a relationship with the Lord until I was a sophomore in high school. I was a I was a sixteen year old kid, and prior to beginning my relationship with the Lord, I had lived a pretty healthy lifestyle apart from Jesus. And I had a Young Life leader through the ministry of Young Life that I've gotten to be a part of for the past 10 years that I came to know and learn what it meant to live in relationship with Jesus Christ. And we actually came up from San Antonio and attended a camp over in Buena Vista called Trail West. And I'll never forget, I will never forget showing up at that place terrified thinking that, oh, this is a Christian camp and I certainly don't belong here because that's not my story, but showing up and hearing a guy by the name of Tiger Dawson, great name, talk about Jesus every night for five nights like he knew him. And I just remember going, "I, I don't necessarily get all that this is, but I want it. I want it. So coming back from that, my Young Life leader, a guy by the name of Brett Rogers, suggested to my group of friends and I, the guys who we shared a cabin together up there during that week at camp, that we show up every Friday morning, we do a breakfast together, and we open the Gospel of John. That he was going to teach us what it looked like to actually read the Bible and become familiar with the person of Jesus Christ. And the Gospel of John... As most of you know, if you were to look at the other synop, if you were to look at the synoptic gospels and the gospel of John, the gospel of John maybe does such a better job of painting a picture, a full picture, a robust picture of Jesus who is both fully God and fully human, both at the same time. And so for, for a, a young believer, me start just starting my relationship with Jesus Christ, it was a great place for us to start. Now, the 16-year-old me was quite a punk. And I'll never forget reading as we're opening the Gospel of John every morning, Friday morning, every breakfast, and we did that pretty much. We did the Gospel of John almost for a year, but we did that. We met every year, sophomore, junior, and senior year. I'll never forget reading the Gospel of John Friday mornings at Brett's house over breakfast, thinking to myself, this guy John sure does have an inflated ego of himself, doesn't he? I'm reading this thing going, how many times... In your own book, how many times in your letter do you need to remind yourself that you are the disciple that Jesus loved? And so the short answer is six. You have to remind yourself six times to actually get it. Six times in the Gospel of John, John says that. Six times he refers to himself as the, as the disciple whom Jesus loved. And then for added kicks, he goes on to tell such stories about that one time, remember that one time that he and, he and Peter were in a race to the, open te- to the open tomb, and it was he who beat Peter? John. Gotta love him. One of the things that over the course of beginning, and I would imagine this has been true for each one of us, that one of the things that happened over the course of my relationship, learning to walk with Jesus Christ, one of those things that I realized was just how vital it would be, Actually towards my growth in Christ, for me to grasp, for me to understand that perspective that John had. For me to really see myself the way that God sees me. You see, for John, the idea that he was loved, the idea that his position in the kingdom of heaven, his position before God, this wasn't just a good idea, but this was something that grabbed a hold of all of John. This was something that bled from his head to his heart, and what happened here was radical. This, this space right here is where transformation happens. Maybe it's a little bit over here. This space, the truth, the reality of who God was, the reality of what God had to say about him had infected all of John's life. And we see this. We know this to be true because if you were to look at John's gospel and if you were to look at each of John's letters, we see the same rhythm. The disciple whom Jesus loved six times. In our letter, First John, Dearly beloved, 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 beloved. There is something there that we have to understand. And so as we look at our text this morning, if you would, go ahead and flip with me to First John 4. And I'll say this too, at that stage in my life, there were so many roadblocks, so many obstacles, so many things in the way, keeping me from understanding what John understood, what it appears that John understood. So many obstacles, and and at 16 years old, 16 years not having known Jesus, I had 16 years of an experience apart from Jesus, so that was quite a rap sheet in my eyes. But maybe the most formidable obstacle, perhaps the largest obstacle, the the largest roadblock to me really understanding who I was in God's sight, the way that John saw himself, was this thing called fear. Fear. My response to the gospel, hearing the message of sin and hearing the reality of the gospel, hearing about what Jesus did on the cross, absolutely brought me to my knees. Absolutely brought me to my knees. And my response was love, but I will not lie to you and tell you that that love and gratitude translated into trust. It was not my my reality. Maybe it was yours, but I can honestly stand here and tell you that while I loved God and was excited to know what that meant and what that looked like in an earthly sense, how I could live that out, did not necessarily mean that I trusted God with all of the things in my life and that, that was evidenced by the fact that I hid things, that I said yes but also no at the same time. And I think the largest contributing factor to that was this thing called fear. So let's take a look at our text this morning. 1 John chapter 4. I'm actually just going to start right at verse 18 and we're going to focus on this for the bulk of our time together this morning. Again, this is the apostle, this is John the apostle, author of the Gospel of John who's also who is writing here in this to the churches surrounding the town of Ephesus. And this is what he says regarding the God, the, regarding the love of God that we talked about last week. There is no fear in love. But perfect love casts out fear. Some of your translations read, and it's a strong word which I love, some of your translations say that perfect love banishes fear. And some of your translations, the Greek language, which is very colorful, say that perfect love literally flings fear out the door. And the part of me that's very childlike still really appreciates that image. That perfect love flings fear out the door because fear involves punishment. And the one who fears is not made perfect in love. So the question that we're going to ask and take a look at this morning is this. John brings up this concept of fear. Talks about living in fear as a result. Fear is focused on punishment. But he says the one who is living in fear, he who lives in fear, has not been made perfect in love. So the question I want to ask and the question we're going to take a look at is this. What are those things that motivate, that perpetuate a paradigm of fear. What are those things that motivate a paradigm of fear? And what I mean by paradigm is a posture. It's kind of a worldview, the way we look at God, the way we look at the world around us. What are the things that motivate a paradigm of fear. Our gospel reading, is one of my — or excuse me, our Old Testament reading, is one of my absolute favorite stories, that picture. And it's also a great moment of sadness for us, right? We know what happens as a, result of the, as a result of Adam and Eve's initial sin. But in this moment, we see this picture of Adam and Eve. And they are literally in a place whose name, Eden, translates into the word pleasure. And that word to me is so fitting because here they are in this place. Here they are in Eden And they are enjoying unbroken, unfiltered, constant access, constant fellowship to God, with God. So naturally, pleasure seems like a fitting word, right? Here they are. God, moments earlier after creation, has looked at them and said, behold, they are very good. And here they are in perfect union, perfect fellowship, nothing in the way. And then as a result of a lie, as a result of temptation, as a result of Satan causing them, wanting to cause them to doubt. Isn't that how he does things? Wanting to cause them to question whether or not he could really be that good. Whether or not they could really be that loving. He injects a lie. And James uses this language, and I see this play out in the, in the Genesis story, in Genesis 3. But that desire, that desire in Adam and Eve conceives and it gives birth to sin. And we see the actions of Adam and Eve, and what happens in that moment, we know. It says that in that moment, there are two things that we're going to highlight, but it says, in that moment, Adam and Eve's eyes were opened, and they realized what? that they were naked. So in response to their nakedness and this is the first moment we hear that word, in response to this, what do they do? It says that they are ashamed, and so they cover themselves. They hide themselves for the very first time in humanity's story, concealment and hiding. One of the things I want to point out about fear as we talk about what is fear, what are the origins of fear, it's easy to see in the story, it's easy to see in the Old Testament story that fear at its very outset, at the very core, fear is the result of sin. That prior to this, There was no doubt. There was no questioning. In that moment, this was the first double take that Adam and Eve had ever made regarding the goodness of God. And a a second thing happened in that moment. They realized that when they looked at each other and they realized that they were naked and when they felt shame and when they were afraid covered themselves, but what's unique and what we can sometimes miss is that this was also the first time in humanity's story that they saw themselves different than how God saw them, and I think that's important. This is the first time in humanity's story that, that mankind, that Adam and Eve saw themselves differently than how God saw them, and as if things couldn't get any worse, right? Bad things, typically, we all, we all have heard the saying, bad things come in threes, Right? So Adam and Eve are there, they realize that they're naked, so they sew fig leaves to cover themselves, and then what happens? It says that on a cool day, so the picture is God taking a casual stroll through the Garden of Eden, which I love that image, it says that on a cool day, God is walking, God the Father is walking through the Garden of Eden, looking for Adam and Eve. Keep in mind this is an omniscient, omnipotent, All-knowing God, right? He's on the prowl. He's looking. He knows. We can assume that he knows what had just happened, but he's going and he's looking for them and he's calling out to them. And I think in a moment of sheer brilliance, Adam puts two and two together. If he really is all-knowing, then he's probably really good at hide and seek. And I should just show myself right now because he's going to find me sooner or later. So what does Adam do? It says that Adam presents himself and he says, Listen, I heard you coming. We heard you coming. And I was afraid. It's the first time we hear that word in the entire Bible, which I think is significant. I heard you coming. I would imagine that moments before sin, that the idea of God approaching would have elicited joy, would have elicited, he's on his way, here he comes, Eve, get ready. But here in this moment, as a result of sin, what's his response? What is his and Eve's response again? For the second time, they hide. They concealed themselves by covering themselves, and they concealed themselves by hiding from God. He says, I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And I love this question, because when we, when we address this reality, this is the second point I'd love to make about fear. It's this, is that fear is the result of seeing ourselves differently than how God sees us. Fear is the result of seeing ourselves differently than how God sees us. And so when they're hiding and when he confesses, this is, an, this is a confession to God. When he says, I heard you coming. I was, I was naked. I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. I love the question that God asks him because he says, who told you that you were naked? Mm-hmm. I didn't. This is Adam's own self-appraisal. Does that make sense? This is Adam telling himself that moments before when God's looking at him and saying, glory, beautiful, really good, now as a result of sin, Adam is looking at himself through the lens of fear and maybe more specifically on that day through the lens of shame. For the, fo- for the first time in, human, in humanity's story, we are seeing have begun to see ourselves differently than how God sees us. The third thing I'll point out about fear comes directly from our text this morning. John says this. He says that perfect love casts out fear. And I love the image. We're going to come back to that in a minute because that is both the presence of fear is an indictment, but the reality that perfect love casts out fear that just like darkness and light, darkness cannot stand in the presence of light, neither can fear, is good news. And we're going to come back to that. I I don't want to beat myself to it, but we're going to come back to that. But what John goes on to say is this. It says, for fear has to do with punishment. Fear has to do with punishment. But imagine that we are all familiar with that experience. Some of us, maybe more so than others. But I would imagine that feeling that Adam, that Adam experienced in the moment of eyes open, realizing that he was naked, feeling shame, and in that moment of realizing that God was coming and he was going to be confronted by God, not, not approached by God, but in his mind confronted by God, which drove him to hide. I would, I would imagine that in that moment, Adam is feeling pain. He is anticipating, he is fearing punishment, what will come. John Stott, the English writer, theologian, also an Anglican cleric, John Stott says this about fear. He says that fear in its reality, fear is a very painful emotion. And what makes, what makes fear dangerous, what makes fear painful is this, is that it makes real now, it makes real in the moment, the pain it anticipates in the future. And again, something, there's something to be said about this in, in Adam's perspective. It anticipates fear, and it makes real now the pain. It makes real now the punishment that it anticipates in the future. So the third point I'll make is this. Fear that... One of the consequences of fear is that we're usually always expecting the worst. The fear that has to do with punishment is a fear that expects the worst. And I would go so far as to say that that's not just related to us and God, but maybe even more so us and our neighbors. That fear causes us to expect the worst. Somewhere in his Rolodex, somewhere in Adam's imagination or in Adam's mind, he is trying to recall what God had just said about this tree. What did he say? I know it was bad, It didn't end up good and we ate it anyways. But what did he say? Eve, do you remember? Oh, yeah. If you take from this tree, you will surely die. So in that moment of hiding, in that moment of jumping, the picture I have, in that moment of Adam ducking behind a tree, or ducking behind a bush, it is that. It is anticipating, expecting that punishment. The worst case scenario. Which also says something, which is the fourth point I'll make on fear, which also says something about Adam's understanding of who God was, who God is. I would say this about fear, is that not only is fear the result of sin, not only is fear the result of our seeing ourselves differently than how God sees us, not only is fear not only does fear cause us to expect the worst and anticipate pain, but I would also say that fear is the result of an image of God, a picture of God that is incomplete. And maybe even more than just incomplete, maybe it's wrong. See, in this moment of fear... Adam has, is holding in question, maybe he's even beyond it, maybe he's not even holding in question God's love. But in this moment of fear, Adam's perspective of God is that God is only punitive. God is only going to hand out punishment. So one of the results of fear, one of the, or excuse me, fear results in us not having a complete picture of who God is. Four things about fear that I hope we can agree on. I hope that we see in this picture. Fear is a result of sin. Fear is what happens when we, fear is the result of our seeing, of us seeing ourselves differently than how God sees us. Fear is, fear is motivated by, um, excuse me, fear is motivated by, by anticipating punishment. And also, fear is, Fear is what happens when we have an incomplete picture of who God is. There are a lot of pictures that we have of who God is at this stage. I would imagine that some of us have held different pictures, that we've operated under different pictures of who God is in different seasons of our life, and some of those pictures are really awful earthly characterizations of what God could be like. And sometimes that picture maybe reflects that God is a cop, that God is a traffic cop kind of directing things. Here, you go this way, you go this way, you're going to get you know, punished for X, Y, and Z and not for this. And some of our pictures of God perhaps are that God is a judge, that God sits in his throne in heaven keeping a tally, a record of rights and wrongs. He's got a gavel in hand and on one day he will call into question all of the things that you've ever said, heard, or done or thought about doing. He will call all of those things into question. He will slam that gavel down and he will decide once and for all whether eternal bliss and joy or eternal damnation. Neither of those pictures is right. Neither of those pictures is the image that we see of God in this book, in his word. And then oftentimes, maybe this is a little bit more tangible for us. I know this to be true having worked with having had 10 years of working with high school students and college-age students, young adults, that, that perhaps maybe the most difficult image, the most difficult picture of God for us to overcome is the picture of our own earthly fathers. How could God possibly be that good? How could I possibly be the object of someone's affection when I've never felt affection like that here on earth? I've never been the object of someone's love here on earth. Are you kidding me? How could his love be that real, be that tangible, be that good? Not all of us have the story of a loving, of a kind, of a good father. And that, that upsets me, to be honest with you. Not in my notes. But my prayer for that today is that we would see more godly husbands and godly fathers correcting that image. When we operate with the wrong image of who God is, it's impossible for us to truly know Him and believe like John did when that love becomes more than just a good idea. When that love begins to infect and change the outcomes of all of our lives, of our hearts, of our DNA, like Glenn talked about last week. So what about fear, though? Because every time we talk about fear, anytime we're going to take a look at this text and address fear, we have to be thinking about, some of us are thinking about, doesn't the Bible also say that fear is good? Doesn't the Bible also say somewhere in the first half, Old Testament, Proverbs 1.9, doesn't the Bible also say that we should fear God? Doesn't it say that fear actually is the beginning of wisdom? Wisdom is good, Therefore, I should fear God. It's usually the way that we think about it. And you're right. This is not one of those places where the Bible contradicts itself, though. You are absolutely right. There is a such thing as healthy fear that leads to wisdom. But I would suggest to you this morning that that is radically different than the fear that leads to withholding, that the fear that says yes, but no. No that the fear that wants to conceal, the fear that is scared of judgment and and, and afraid of punishment and would rather hide, that there is a radical difference between the fear that leads to wisdom and the fear that leads to withholding. And that difference is this. The fear of the Lord that leads to wisdom is a fear that's predicated by reverence and awe. And what I mean by that is it looks at God, not for what we think about him, but it looks at God and holds a correct image of God for who he really is. And so it sees God as both sovereign and infinite beyond our grasp, beyond the scope of our total comprehension. It sees God as sovereign and infinite and recognizes at the same moment that I am not. That is the fear of the Lord that leads to wisdom. Lewis put it this way. Lewis tells the story in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, one of my all-time favorite books. Lewis tells the story of Lucy asking about Aslan. What is he like? And she asks Mr. Beaver, is he safe? He's safe, right? Mr. Beaver responds, safe? Goodness, no. Who said anything about safe? Didn't you hear a word that that Mrs. Beaver just told you? He's not safe, but he is good. He's still a lion, right? He's not safe, but he is good. He is the king, I tell you. What I love about that picture is he doesn't respond to us, but he chooses still to engage us. And that, my friends, is the good news of the gospel. What is perfect love? We ask, what is this perfect love that puts a stranglehold on fear and throws it right out the door? What is perfect love? Well, the good news is this. Our New Testament reading, our gospel reading, excuse me, says this. It's that interaction between Jesus and Philip. Jesus is about to go, and he's just told his disciples that he is going to be leaving, but that he's not leaving them alone. He's just told them that he's about to be leaving. And Philip says, well, then Jesus, show us the Father, and that'll be enough. And how does Jesus respond? Friends, this is good news. Jesus says, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. That if we want to, that if perfect love, if we want to understand what perfect love is, friends, here is good news. We need not look any further than the personality of Jesus Christ. Amen? If we want to understand what perfect love is, we need not look any further than the person, the character, the the weightiness of his personality. We need not look any further than the person of Jesus Christ. And so the good news is also this, so that in our paradigm of fear, the very incarnation, the very fact that he is good, he's the king, I tell you, the very fact that God is king and that God comes is the same image that we see in Genesis, knowing fully where they were at, of God calling out, where are you, Adam? Eve, where have you gone? Where are you? The presence of Jesus Christ here on earth, the fact that we have a picture, Colossians says he's the visible image of an invisible God, is good news. Why? Because it is that perfect love that Jesus shows us that flings fear out the door. So how do we exist in it? How do we live in it? The first half of our passage in 1 John tells us that while Jesus revealing, the fact that Jesus reveals the Father is one of the ways that he breaks the cycle of fear. The other is that Jesus breaks the cycle of fear by giving us the promise, by giving us the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, the very thing that animated his own life, the things that he said and did. That Jesus gives us the very same thing to prove to us, John says, by this we know that we abide in him and he in us. That is the picture of perfect love. One word, abiding. If Jesus' revelation, Jesus here on earth, breaks the cycle of fear, then the degree, hear me say this, the degree that which we abide in God's love, and this abiding language is taking something that's, that's a good idea and actually allowing it to become real. That's abiding. Where it bleeds from our heads to our hearts. That if Jesus showing himself his life, death, and resurrection breaks the cycle of fear, then the degree to which we are willing to abide in his love breaks the yoke of fear. Once and for all. And friends, that is good news. That is good news. I will say this, and we'll close here. That while we can approach God in love and reverence simultaneously it will forever be impossible for us to both approach God in love and hide from him in fear at the same time. So my question, my challenge for us this morning is this. Jesus is good news. We know that the promise of perfect love, Jesus, God's perfect love, which we see at work in Jesus Christ, and we also get to experience at work in us, that that perfect love casts out fear. My question is this. What are the images in our heads this morning, Sunday, November 9th. What are the images in your head? What are the images that you are operating under, both of yourself and of God, where you're desperate for an upgrade? Where you're desperate to say, I want the real image. I want the fullest picture of you, God, right now, right here in this place. What image are you holding onto of yourself? And what image can we hold onto of God together. Let me pray. Jesus, Lord, thank you. Thank you that you are not a distant and far off God, that you are not a God who is cop and judge in that way that we think about it, that you can be both just and loving perfectly at the same time. And thank you that the cross is the ultimate example that the gospel of love triumphs over and will forever triumph over the gospel of sin and death. Jesus, thank you that in the way that you reveal the Father, you break, you interrupt, you hit the brakes on the cycle of fear, and that you didn't leave us as orphans, Jesus. But that you gave us the very same spirit that animated everything you said and did while you were here on earth, including the cross. And so Jesus, would you come and would you have your way with our hearts in the very same way that your spirit, that the spirit of the Father had its way with your heart? Jesus, would you wake us up to what it looks like to abide in your perfect love? And then as we learn to do that, we give you permission We give you permission to get rid of fear however you see fit. If that's putting it in a stranglehold and ushering it out the door, then do it. If that's just causing us to be so enamored by your love that we just casually forget and are never afraid, then do that. Jesus, this morning we say that we love you and we need you. And we want, we want to experience the fullest expression of your love.